Father God, I thank you for this time that we have to see what you have us to learn from your word. Lord, I just pray that you'll open our minds and our hearts. Lord, help us to learn from you, um, from your word and what you have to say for us today. And help us to apply it to your life, to our lives. In your precious name, amen. All right, here we go. Does anyone here today have the same um, thoughts that I do? I read the scriptures and have in the back of my mind that the people spoken of are somehow special, that they're not ordinary people like you and me. Maybe it's a hidden desire to excuse myself when I don't measure up or to build myself up when I think I would have done a better job than they did. I know this isn't true. I know the disciples were just regular Joes, and this morning we're going to see examples of them acting just like we would have. And we'll see God's graciousness in dealing with them just as he is in dealing with us. John 6, 1 tells us, After this, Jesus crossed over the Sea of Galilee, also known as, as the Sea of Tiberias. The after this jumps us about a year ahead in time and moves us from Jerusalem back to Galilee. Jesus had been on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, and now he travels by boat to a place on the eastern shore, which Luke comments is Bethsaida, which was located just southeast of where the Jordan River flows into the Sea of Galilee. Why did Jesus go there? Well, Mark and Luke tell us that the disciples had just returned from their preaching tour and Jesus invites them to come away with him to rest a while. Also, the disciples of John the Baptist had just told Jesus that Herod had killed John. Jesus' withdrawal will, would allow his disciples time to rest and for him to minister to them in private and it would delay a confrontation with either Herod or the Pharisees until the proper time. However, the people wouldn't leave Jesus alone that easily. Verses 2 through 4. And a huge crowd kept following him wherever he went because they saw his miracles and he healed the sick. Then Jesus went up into the hills and sat down with his disciples around him. It was nearly time for the annual Passover celebration. The persistent crowd see Jesus departing by boat and they start following him along the shore. They're attracting more and more people as they go. John is very direct about the reason for all these people following Jesus. They had seen his healing miracles, and they wanted to see more. Matthew reveals that when Jesus went ashore, he saw a vast crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. Remember, he was seeking privacy for his disciples and himself. How would you have felt? You're tired. You've been dealing with people and their problems for a long time already. Your followers have just returned from the assignment you sent them on, and they need some attention. You've just learned that one of your greatest supporters has been killed, and you were looking forward to some peace and quiet. You get in a boat and sail away, but when you get to your isolated spot, a crowd is already there, and more are coming. This is a recipe for frustration and anger. But this isn't what we see in Jesus. Both Mark and Luke tell us in the Gospels that Jesus' mercy and compassion also exhibited itself in teaching them many things about the kingdom of God. God isn't some impersonal force out there that's indifferent to the things we go through. Jesus told his followers that if they have seen him, they have seen the Father. And Jesus isn't cold and calculating or removed from the suffering of mankind. Jesus would have had every right 
to tell this crowd of people to give him a break and leave him alone. But instead, he's deeply moved over the physical suffering, the confusion, the spiritually wayward state of these people. He had compassion on this multitude, even though many were shallow, self-centered thrill-seekers um, whom he knew would reject him only a short time later. In verses 5 through 9, Jesus puts a test to his disciples. Jesus soon saw a great crowd of people climbing the hill looking for him. Turning to Philip, he asked Philip, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? He was testing Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. Philip replied, it would take a, full, a small fortune, 200 denarii, to feed them. Then Andrew, Simon's Peter's, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. There's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. But what good is that with this huge crowd? Matthew, Mark, and Luke all indicate that it was getting toward evening and that the disciples were urging Jesus to send the people away so that they could go into the surrounding villages and buy something to eat for themselves. Instead, Jesus told the disciples, you give them something to eat. It's probably at this point that Jesus asked Philip his question. The text doesn't tell us why Jesus singles Philip out, but we do see Philip's quick assessment and conclusion that not even 200 denarii, which is the equivalent of 200 days' worth of wages, could buy enough food for everyone to receive even a little bite. From the other gospel accounts, we know that Jesus asked what they did have. Andrew brings in a child who has five barley loaves and two small fish. This isn't much food, and Andrew points that out. His assessment is also that this is an impossible task. The needs were beyond the ability of human resources to provide. But as verses 10 through 13 point out, they weren't impossible for Jesus. Tell everyone to sit down, Jesus ordered them. So the, and the men alone numbered 5,000, sat down on the grassy slopes. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God, and passed them out to the people. Afterward, he did the same with the fish, and they all ate until they were full. Now gather the leftovers, Jesus told his disciples, so that nothing is wasted. There were only five barley loaves to start with, but 12 baskets were filled with the pieces of the bread the people did not eat. Can you imagine this sight? The people sitting down in or organized groups of 50 and 100 against the backdrop of the lush green grass that grows here in the early spring and the blue sky above. Then Jesus took the bread and the fish, giving thanks for the food to the Father and dividing it among disciples to distribute to the crowd. Nothing in the text indicates when the bread and the fish multiplied or how it did so. There was no fanfare, but quietly the food multiplied with the magnitude of the miracle being attested to by the many people who ate and were satisfied. This wasn't a small snack to tie them over until they could get more food. It was abundant. The bounty of the food provided is proved in the amount of leftovers that were gathered, 12 baskets full. There is a lesson in the leftovers, ladies. An infinite resource is not an excuse for waste. God provides with abundance, and we may freely take and use all that we want. 
but he doesn't condone waste. Rejoice and be glad in the blessings the Lord gives you, but don't squander those blessings. The people understood the significance of the miracle. When the people saw the miraculous sign, they exclaimed, Surely he is the prophet we have been expecting. Jesus saw that they were ready to take him by force and make him king, so he went higher into the hills alone. The miracle was plain to see, and because of it, they recognized that Jesus was the prophet spoken of in Deuteronomy 18. The problem was that they didn't understand the ministry that the prophet would bring. They only thought of political power and a restoration of Israel to its, former, to its former glory, and they intended to act on their beliefs. Jesus didn't go along with their intentions, and from the other gospel accounts, we learned that he immediately sent his disciples back across the Sea of Galilee in the boat and dismissed the crowds. He then withdrew further up the mountain. Jesus was never overwhelmed by the events that surrounded him, and he never lost control over them. He remained in control of what he would do and when he would do it. The miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 plus is obviously a very important one, as it is the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels. But what does it mean to us? Jesus' demonstration of compassion is definitely a model for us. Life isn't about our convenience, but about serving the Lord. Ministering to others isn't always convenient, yet the more we are able to see people through God's love, the better we are able to reach out sacrificially to meet their needs. We also need to remember that true ministry involves telling others about God. We should meet the physical needs of others, but our real purpose is to help meet their spiritual need for a savior. In addition, God's timing doesn't have to match our plans. There is a blessing in yielding to his perfect timing. Jesus and the disciples had set out to spend much needed time alone. It's often in the unforeseen circumstances that we can learn some of the greatest lessons about God and how to live for him. We don't need to question the wisdom of God asking us to obey him. It's enough to know of his love for us and that he will enable us to accomplish whatever he asks of us. The task Jesus charged his disciples with was impossible for them, but that was exactly the point. They would be sent out to do what was impossible by every reasonable human means. But Jesus can do what is humbly, excuse me, Jesus can do what is humanly impossible. And the disciples were to look to him just as we are called to do today. The apostles are just like us. All they could see was an impossible task, even though the one who could do the impossible was right there in front of them. It's not recorded that they asked Jesus for help. All they said was it couldn't be done. They were defeated before they started. How often have you felt this way? We need to remember that God doesn't require success from us, only faithfulness in following his commands. It's God himself who works out the end result. God doesn't ask for mindless obedience. He asks us to have the faith of a child that fully expects, expects his father to provide. Children instinctively understand that they will be able to accomplish tasks with the help of those who are more able than they are. They aren't too proud to ask for help. The same needs to be true in our relationship with God. 
It's not a matter of understanding why he wants us to do something, but a matter of trusting him that it's the best for us and that we are able to do it with his help. Verses 16 through 21. That evening, his disciples went down to the shore to wait for him. But as darkness fell and Jesus still hadn't come back, they got into the boat and headed out across the lake toward Capernaum. Soon a gale swept down upon them as they rode, and the sea grew very rough. They were three or four miles out when suddenly they saw Jesus walking on the water toward the boat. They were terrified, but he called out to them, I am here, don't be afraid. Then they were eager to let him in, and immediately the boat arrived at their destination. In Matthew's gospel, we are told that Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side and sent the crowds away. And by evening, he was alone. The disciples didn't understand all that Jesus did, but they had learned to trust him and follow his directions. They left to go back to Capernaum, which was only about five miles away by boat. It should have been an easy journey, especially since several of the disciples were experienced fishermen and were well acquainted with traveling in that area but they've run into a storm matthew describes them as being in trouble far away from land because a strong wind had risen and they were fighting the heavy waves mark describes them as being in serious trouble rowing hard and struggling against the wind and waves both matthew and mark say the time was the fourth watch which would have been between 3 and 6 a.m and yet they've only traveled three or four miles. The waves are battering the boat. The Greek word used here is also used to describe torment, distress, and torture. These are sizable waves crashing against the boat. So we get the picture of what these 12 men are going through. Can you imagine how you would feel in this situation? It's late at night and you're tired. You're perplexed by the events of the day. You haven't gotten your much needed time alone with Jesus. And now you've been sent away and find yourself rowing very hard and not going anywhere fast. The waves are crashing against your boat and making it creak and groan with the strain. And you are well aware that you could capsize and drown. You're wet and cold and eating the loaves and fishes seems a long time ago. So they're straining at the oars, trying to head west, and they're facing east, the direction they've come from. It's near Passover, so the moon would have been nearly full, illuminating the white caps of the waves. Then they see something they never expected, Jesus walking on the water towards the boat. Say what? It would have been frightening enough just being in the middle of the Sea of Galilee in the midst of a storm. But now there is also something happening that they can't comprehend. John says they were terrorized from a word with a root meaning to put to flight. If they could have, they would have run for the hills. The word used in Matthew is a stronger word with a literal meaning of being shaken or thrown into confusion and alarm. This is something they couldn't have imagined in their wildest dreams. Having been sent ahead, they weren't expecting to see Jesus until sometime later after they had reached Caper Capernaum. Who would have ever expected Jesus to meet them in the middle of the Sea of Galilee in any case, by any means, and even more so on such a stormy night? They're already stressed and frightened from fighting the storm, 
And then through the shadowy light given off by the moon, they see the figure of a man apparently walking on top of the water. Listen, the hair would have been standing straight out on the back of my neck. The adrenaline would have been pumping double time through my veins, and my heart would have been pounding through my chest. Jesus simply says, I am here. Don't be afraid. Isn't that comforting? God reminds them that he's there. But there is something more beautiful than that. Mark records that Jesus was alone on the mountain praying and seeing their struggle, he came to them. They may have felt alone, but they never were. Jesus had been praying the entire time that the storm had been raging and he didn't just pray. He also responded to their need. Jesus is still the same. He is still with those of us that have placed our faith in him. He will never leave us nor forsake us. We may not understand all that is going on or why it's happening, but we can know that our Lord is with us. Once the disciples received him into the boat, another miracle occurred. They immediately reached their destination. They had labored hard for many hours to get there on their own, but they were unable to reach the shore. Once Jesus was with them, they quickly arrived. Verses 22 through 25 explain what's happening the next day back across the lake. The crowds had seen the disciples leaving their boat. They knew, but Jesus had gone up on the mountain. Now they began to look for Jesus, but can't find him. There was no other boat Jesus could have left on. They could not have known that Jesus walked directly across the lake to join his disciples. Tiberius was nearby, and folks from that city came in their boats to where Jesus had been the day before. When they got there, they found that Jesus had already left, but the multitude was still intent on finding him. They all joined together, got in the boats, and went across to Capernaum. Once there, they found Jesus and asked him how he had gotten there. If Jesus had answered their question by relating the events of the previous evening, walking on water and calming the storm, he would have fueled their conception that he was a miracle worker who was powerful enough to lead a revolution against Rome. But this held no interest for Jesus. He had come to establish a kingdom of a different nature. Instead, Jesus looks into their hearts and rebukes them for their wrong motives in seeking him out. Jesus replied, The truth is you want me to be with me because I fed you, not because you saw the miraculous sign. But you shouldn't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that I, the Son of Man, can give you. For God the Father has sent me for that very purpose. These people had searched for Jesus because they had gotten a free meal, not because they were interested in spiritual things. They were looking for someone who would meet their felt needs. They understood the significance of his miracles in some small degree, but they didn't understand the nature of the Messiah or what he actually had come to do. They wanted a leader who would restore their nation to her glory days, someone who could heal the sick and provide food for them when they were hungry. Jesus rebuked them because their minds were stuck in the materialism of this life. He urged them to perceive the spiritual realities that were so much more important. Physical food sustains your life temporarily, but the spiritual food of Jesus would bring eternal life. Jesus again designates himself with the messianic name, Son of Man. He is the one that will give this food for God 
the father had sent him for that very purpose. They replied, what does God want us to do? Their response shows that they didn't get the spiritual nature of what Jesus was telling them. They think that they can somehow earn eternal life. That was the basic premise which the religious leaders had been following. You did certain things and refrained from doing other things and you would gain eternal life. They want rules and duties spelled out. Jesus' answer to them is direct and to the point, but they won't understand it, which, which will lead them to misunderstand most everything else Jesus will say in this discussion. Jesus told them, this is what God wants you to do. Believe in the one he has sent. They wanted to work for eternal life. That's a materialistic view. Jesus gave them an answer from a spiritual view. The work would be to believe in Jesus because God had sent him. There would not be a list of rules or duties to keep and perform to some standard for gaining eternal life. It would come as a gift to those who believed. Let me be very clear. Salvation is a gift from God that comes entirely by his grace. That truth is presented throughout the Gospel of John. Ephesians 2.8 also teaches that faith itself is a gift from God. Faith isn't something that we can somehow work up for ourselves. It only comes from the Holy Spirit working in the life of an individual. The unsaved person is dead in sin, Ephesians 2.1, with a mind that is blinded, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, and an understanding that is darkened, Ephesians 4.17. The Holy Spirit must bring conviction of sin, John 16, 8. Illumine the mind, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, and regenerate the sinner, Ephesians 2, 5 and Titus 3, 5, for them to believe and be saved. God is the one that does all the work. Having the truth presented, convicting the sinner, and enabling the sinner to repent and believe in Jesus is all God's work. The work of faith, is the work of receiving the gift of God. In verses 30 through 33, they replied, you must show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What will you do for us? After all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. As the scriptures say, Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said, I assure you, Moses didn't give them bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The crowd may not have understood all that Jesus was talking about, but they did understand that he was claiming to be the Messiah. They demanded that Jesus give proof of this claim. They had seen many of the signs Jesus had performed. Yet what they wanted now was proof that Jesus was really from God the Father by performing a miracle they, would be, um, they thought would be equal with Moses. After all, in their minds, Moses had rained down bread from heaven. What was the multiplying of loaves and fishes compared to that? Jesus reminds them that it wasn't Moses who gave the manna, but God himself. Moses simply gave the directions on how it would come and how to gather it. Then he again focuses on the spiritual nature of the food he was referring to. God was now sending the true bread out of heaven. The manna was only a type of the true bread which was to come. The manna gave temporary nourishment, but the true bread would give life to the world. 
Sir, they said, give us that bread every day of our lives. Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry again. Those who believe in me will never thirst. But you haven't believed in me, even though you have seen me. However, those the Father has given me will come to me, and I will never reject them. For I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do what I want. And this is the will of God that I should not lose even one of all those he has given me, but that I should raise them to eternal life at the last day. For it is my Father's will that all who see his Son and believe in him should have eternal life, that I should raise them as on the last day. Their focus is still on the physical. This sounds like great bread. Give it, give it to us continually. Jesus now clarifies the nature of the true bread. It is Jesus himself. Who is the bread from heaven? He is the food that gives eternal life. Jesus satisfies both spiritual hunger and thirst. The tragedy is they were still not ready to receive what Jesus was telling them. Jesus knows their hearts and tells them, you haven't believed in me even though you have seen me. They've seen the miracles and heard him teach, but they were still unbelieving. Jesus continued to explain the promise to those who come to him, as well as his own submission to the Father and the Father's will for them. The promise is one of security. Jesus will not reject in the present nor in the future. God the Father is involved in a person coming to Jesus for salvation. He gives them to Jesus. Whoever comes is welcomed and will not be rejected. Jesus is in complete submission to the Father's will, and the Father the Father's will is that none of those he gives to Jesus will be lost, but will be raised up on the last day. This is the promise of security and resurrection, as well as the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. Once a person belongs to Jesus, he will never let them go. He will fulfill every one of his promises to them. Regardless of how you may feel when circumstances get tough, Jesus is still there. He's not a butterfingers who will drop you or an absent-minded perfecter who's going to forget all about you. He who began a good work in you will complete it, Philippians 1.6. The crowd had challenged Jesus' authority and wanted him to prove himself. Jesus' response not only corrected their errors in thinking and pointed to the spiritual realities involved, but he also made it very clear that opposing his will was also opposing the will of God the Father. Then the Jewish people began to murmur in disagreement because he had said, I am the bread from heaven. They said, this is Jesus, the son of Joseph. We know his father and mother. How can he say I came down from heaven? So what do you do when you're not happy with what you're hearing? Well, grumble, of course. And this is what we see here. What was the problem? Well, the Jews, those who are following the Pharisaical system, are hostile to Jesus. These are local people that knew Jesus and his family, the leaders of this synagogue in Capernaum and their followers. Their mindset wasn't any different from the religious leaders in Jerusalem. They reject the idea that Jesus was something other than an ordinary man. The fact that they knew him and his family only added to their rejection of his claim. He couldn't possibly be someone who came down from heaven since they knew his family and had watched him grow up. Jesus heard their grumbling and knew what it was about. 
He answers in verses 43 through 51, showing why they didn't believe and then restates his claim even more forcefully. Don't complain about what I said, for people can't come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them to me, and the last day I will raise them from the dead. As it is written in the scriptures, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who hears and learns from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has ever seen the Father, only I who, has, who was sent from heaven have seen him. I assure you, anyone who believes in me already has eternal life. Yes, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. However, the bread from heaven gives eternal life to anyone who eats it. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh offered so the world may live. Jesus doesn't address the specifics of their grumbling. He just tells them to stop it. Then he forcefully states that unless the father draws a person, they can't come to Christ. The word used for draw here means to drag. This isn't a gentle persuasion, but a strong force that gets the job done. Like a fish in a net being dragged to shore, it's not where we would naturally want to go. Some fish might swim with the net and be moved easily, while others swim against the net and are moved by the force of the net. In both cases, the net does the job and the fish are drawn in. So it is with salvation. Some are more compliant than others, but all who are saved were drawn to Christ by the Father through the Holy Spirit's action of convicting us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. No one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws them. All those that hear and learn from the Father will come to Jesus. Unfortunately, not all taught by God will hear and learn. That was the case with these Jews. The contrast between Jesus and the manna is made clear. The manna could sustain life only for a short time, but the curse of sin would still bring death. Jesus is the bread from heaven that overcomes the curse of sin and brings eternal life. That this is metaphorical is clear in the context. Jesus is referring to his coming sacrifice for sin on the cross. He is going to give his flesh for the life of the world. Again, there is no spiritual understanding among the Jews. They take Jesus' words literally, leading to even greater confusion. How can this man give us flesh to eat? They had been grumbling among themselves before, but now they're arguing with each other. Jesus explains it again in verses 53 through 59. I assure you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. But those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them at the last day. For my flesh is the true fruit, food, and my blood is the true drink. All who eat my flesh and drink my blood remain in me, and I in them. I live by the power of the living Father who sent me. In the same way, those who partake of me will live because of me. I am the true bread of heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever and not die as your ancestors did, even though they ate the manna. This should have been understandable to them. But again, 
They didn't understand the figurative language. Jesus couldn't have been advocating the, li the literal eating of his flesh and drinking of his blood because this was unthinkable under Mosaic law. A person who ate blood was to be cut off from among the people, Leviticus 17.11. While even Jesus' close disciples didn't understand that the Messiah would come first to suffer and die for man's sins, the concept is presented in Old Testament passages such as Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. The knowledge was available to them and they should have recognized Jesus' statements about his blood as a reference to a sacrifice. In addition, eternal life is a spiritual concept as is the concept of abiding in Jesus and him abiding in them. Even though confused, they could have humbly asked more questions. Instead, they rejected him on the basis of their limited knowledge. God resists the proud and arrogant, but he gives grace to the humble. Now Jesus turns his attention to his disciples, who are also having a hard time with, with, with what Jesus said. Even his disciples said, this is very hard to understand. How can anyone accept it? Jesus knew within himself that his disciples were complaining. So he said to them, does this offend you? Then what will you think if you see me, the son of man, return to heaven again? It is the spirit who gives eternal life. Human effort accomplishes nothing. And the very words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But some of you don't believe me. Jesus confronts their grumbling response and asks them if they are taking offense. The idea here is that they are allowing themselves to be trapped in the sin. He is pointing out that his words have exposed the hardness of their sinful hearts. He then points to a future event, his return to heaven, and they will not believe they will not believe if their hearts remained hardened. Were they also rejecting Jesus' claim to have come from heaven? What evidence could convince them that Jesus was from God? Jesus tells them directly that what he had said er earlier was of spiritual things, not fleshly things. Jesus wasn't talking about cannibalistic eating his flesh and drinking his blood, but was using an analogy for believing him and his claims. He then warns them that some of them will not believe and reasserts that the Father is the one who draws those who will come to the Son. The point of Jesus' words was demonstrated quickly by their action. At this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Many of these people claimed to be followers of Jesus, but what they meant, but that meant they would have to believe that Jesus was actually from heaven. They rejected what they didn't understand. They wanted a savior that was like themselves, just more powerful. They were looking for someone who could make their lives better in the here and now. I know from the examples in scripture that there may be some here that will eventually reject Christ. Let this serve as a warning. Don't let it be you. Jesus already knows everything about you and still loved you so much that he died in your place. Living in the flesh is only a facade of what life can be. Living for Jesus is true life. Nothing could be more fulfilling. Don't trade the reality of the abundant life in Christ for the false promises of life in the flesh. If you're sitting here today and you're 
and your life isn't what you were hoping it would be, then, then the answer is in learning more about Christ and walking with him, not in following the example of those in our text who walked away from him. Jesus now concerns himself with the twelve, those he had chosen to be his closest followers. Then Jesus turned to the twelve and asked, Are you going to leave too? Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You alone have the words that give eternal life. We believe them, and we know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus said, I chose the twelve of you, but one is a devil. He was speaking of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, one of the twelve who would betray him. Jesus' question is rhetorical and expects a negative answer, but Jesus asks it as a test of the twelve. Peter is acting as the spokesman for all of them. He uses the plural we. As a group, they had come to understand and believe that Jesus was who he was claiming to be. He was the Holy One sent by God the Father. That was a problem for the Jews and the disciples that had walked away. But it is the truth that brings eternal life. If Jesus is who he claims, then everything changes in your life as it did for the twelve. But even among the twelve, there was one imposter. What is your response to Jesus' claim to be the Son of God who was sent by God the Father to redeem man? You can fool yourselves. You might even be able to fool others, but you can't fool Jesus. The proof is in your life. To feed on Jesus is to feed on what he has said. That is how you can know him, believe him, and follow him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for these words that do bring eternal life. Lord, I just pray that you'll touch the heart of every lady here. Lord, to, uh, to reaffirm who you are in her life, to reaffirm the fact that, um, that we are to follow you, to follow your example, to minister to others, to share the truth of your word to others. Lord, I just pray that you will help us to be impacted greatly by your words and your truth. Amen.